Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, I speak with Monica Guzman about bridging the divide of polarity by bridging it within ourselves. When people come in and they don't feel safe, you can you can see it in the body 100%, whether it's a crossed arm or it's sort of a, a certain look uh, in the eyes. And it can, it can lead people, it does lead people more quickly toward judgment. And I've, I've found there to be this polarity between judgment and curiosity. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast, where we discuss every aspect of life through the lens of somatic psychology, nutrition, and self-inquiry. My name is Luis Mojica, and I'm a somatic educator who teaches people how to find safety inside themselves so they can better navigate this strange and sensational human experience. Your time to learn begins now. So officially welcoming Monica Guzman to the show. Thank you, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. I'm thrilled because uh, this whole topic just lights me up. And I just, I don't even know where to begin. So I, I kind of wanted to start with just some solidarity, which is my parents voted for Trump. Ah, yes. So, you know, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, so yeah. I thought we could just kind of like, you know, play <laughs> from there. So you, I guess, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience first? Tell okay. them about you. Yeah. So I'm Monica Guzman. I am the author of a book called I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. And I'm also the Senior Fellow for Public Practice at Braver Angels, which is the nation's largest uh, grassroots nonprofit dedicated to depolarizing America. Easy peasy. <laughs> Easy light work. Just some light work. Yeah, you know, I work on this side. We're just having fun. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's tough. Okay. So my first question is more of a personal one. Have you always been curious? Yeah. So for a lot of people, curiosity is a personality trait. Some people are naturally curious and others are not. Based on the research I've seen, curiosity is more of a practice than a personality trait. That said, when I look back at my life... (laughs) I think I have 
practiced a lot of curiosity since I was a kid. When I was a kid, I was a lot more shy, but it was when I did my first journalism internship after my freshman year of college that those two parts of me collided and curiosity won. I remember how terrified I'd be just to pick up the phone, dial a number and do an interview for some feature story. Just my heart pumping in my chest Mm -hmm. Uh, and learning that, hey, if you want to be a journalist, if you want to tell stories, if you want to get to know people and share about them to their community, you're going to have to get over this. (laughs) And it turned out I really was so fascinated by people that eventually, yeah, the fear of asking questions, the fear of approaching a stranger went away. Mm. I'm just kind of taking it in because a big part of my work, I'm a somatic therapist and educator. So a lot of what I do is helping people build capacity in their bodies for curiosity, Mm -hmm. not even for others first, but for their own experiences, their own meanings about themselves, their own identities, like, you know, whatever's happening in them. And then it starts to kind of, you know, reverberate out toward their relationships in the world. So when I think about your work and when I've listened to some of, I'm a listener. I don't read as mm-hmm. much as I used to. Um, I have your book though. I want to read the whole thing. But when I listen to parts of it and I listen to your interviews, I think what really lights me up, and this is my word, capacity to disagree. Mm-hmm. And that disagreement doesn't mean threat or hatred. And I want you to kind of help me parse that out for those listening. Yeah. I work in that area pretty, you know, (laughs) pretty like right there, just straightforward, right into disagreement, right into debate, right into conflict. And the sense of threat is one of the biggest, it's, it's kryptonite to curiosity because you can't wonder about something you think is out to get you. Why would you, right? If a big bear is chasing me, I'm like, I wonder how fuzzy it is. No, That's right. <laughs> it's, it's chasing That's right. you. You've got to run, you know, or shoot it or something, but you're certainly not going to be like, oh, I want to know about the bear. Mm. And so what the mm. research has shown us is that we've become really afraid of each other across across big divides of disagreement. So we could speak at the individual level where, you know, disagreement could align or not with some larger social trends. But I, I definitely live in a, in that in that place where there are some very, very big social trends that are getting us to kind of burn bridges and judge each other more while engaging each other less, which is just this vicious cycle. Um, because the longer that you do that, the more afraid you get, the more sure you are, the more certain you are that you are going to face some kind of harm when you cross lines of disagreement. And uh, and certainty is another bit of kryptonite. It's the arch villain of curiosity. When you think you know, you won't think to ask. I love that. I'm wondering, just so people can position you in their minds, what how do you identify what is your, when you say I'm in a place that practices polarity, tell mm-hmm. us what that means. Yeah. So I, at the nonprofit that I work at, Braver Angels, I work with lots of folks who are conservative, lots of folks who are liberal at a time when it seems like the two should not get along at all, Mm -hmm. shouldn't collaborate. But but at Braver Angels, at all levels of leadership, we have what's called the Braver Angels rule, which means that there has to be leadership that is split between what we call red, leaning conservative, and blue, leaning liberal. So I'm just living in that. I'm living in that. So there's a lot of folks who try to avoid it. Uh, There's a lot of people who confront it, you know, with shields up and their swords out. And we've got, you know, goodness to fight for. And these people are in our way. And and yeah, so I'm one of those weirdos. (laughs) We call ourselves bridge builders sometimes who are trying to hold the two ends together. I like that idea. Like weirdo, sometimes I call it a bridge builder. Um, my one friend, Marguerite, who will be on here at some time, we always talk about being bridges together. Mm-hmm. And I think part of um, the reason why I was curious about your curiosity, you know, how long it's been like that for you, is I understand you're born to actually, you were technically a Mexican immigrant until 20 years ago or so, right? A Mexican citizen. So I wasn't a US citizen until 2000. Um, okay. Yeah, I immigrated from Mexico with my parents and my brother when I was about five. We moved to Texas and then went up to New England. Um, so yeah, grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, had a blast, 
Not a lot of people spoke Spanish around me. <laughs> it was like an Irish Catholic neighborhood. It was just a whole thing. And uh, yeah, so so that's that. And my parents, once we became citizens, it became, uh, they made it pretty clear pretty quickly that they were Republicans. And uh, even though we had had all these debates in the 90s as I was growing up about welfare and stuff, I just, it just didn't occur to me that we would end up on opposite political sides. It didn't mean as much then as it would now to discover that about each other. But one of the fascinating things about having the experience of adopting a country mm. is that we ended up basically starting to vote at the same time, right? These two generations, the kids and the parents. So yeah, then what followed was two decades plus of rollicking conversations. <laughs> well, I, I think what I love about this, uh, the, the idea of the bridge um, where I relate to part of your story is... I was also, I grew up in an Irish Catholic town mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania, and I'm in a Puerto Rican Irish family. So one side, second generation um, immigration from Puerto Rico, and the other mm -hmm. side, three generations from Ireland. So mm -hmm. the Puerto Rican side was much more obvious, right? Because they spoke Spanish, they spoke very little English, they're people of color. So you could see that we were different there. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other side, we kind of like fit in. And I, I present, I fit, I quote, fit in, you know, white, white passing, I guess we would call it. But it taught me so much about the bridge because I was constantly in between these two cultural experiences, yeah. like over the holidays, yeah. over the weekends, one house to the other. And I just learned there's so much nuance to every experience, right? And so is that that has to be part of this ability in you. Absolutely. I mean, when you asked about have I always been curious, I think part of what I think of is that, that curiosity was survival when you're spanning two worlds when you come from one country with one language and you go to the other and you have to learn that language i remember confusing <laughs> this sort of has a new meaning now but i used to confuse him and her like uh be, just just as a, as learning english goes mm. i remember as a little kid yeah. and it was it was people would giggle at me but there's all kinds of things that you end up asking wait why is it this way over here and that way over there and and those things kind of bug you right and you have to figure it out it leads you to ask more questions about your own origin your own culture because you feel the contrasts they're in you they're part of you you know what's funny is those weirdos the bridge builders i've i've observed an interesting pattern in some of the folks who are more to borrow a term from the startup world where i've spent a lot of time early adopters of bridge building types of techniques a lot of them have within themselves a dual identity they mm. couldn't they couldn't just be part of a team around race or ethnicity or origin or anything. They just couldn't because they're half black, half white, right? Or their mother was Catholic and their father was Jewish or whatever. Uh, and I, I don't think that's an accident. Um, when you have to do that as part of your life, you end up practicing curiosity just to know who you are. So you're speaking to something that I find very spiritual and beautiful about America is that it's the specifically, I mean, it happens everywhere at this point, but speaking as an American, it, we have this opportunity here. I mean, to me, it's beyond opportunity. It's a need where we, we kind of must practice this um, capacity to disagree and to have curiosity as a guiding force because the very fabric of our country is about bridges. Everyone has come here, except for the native population, from somewhere else and has adopted the land, has adopted a language, has adopted a culture. Mm -hmm. So we all really fit into this nuanced spectrum of, well, that's strange. That's that's not mine. I adopted this. And that's, that's in us as Americans. I find that so powerful as like uh, an invitation. Like, wow, we have this chance to play with that. What do you, what do you yeah. think about that? Oh, I think, I think that's beautiful. And I had not thought of it that way. Uh, I think you're <laughs> absolutely right. That is, that is the opportunity of America. I think one of the frustrations that we run into and at times of lots of turbulence, like right now it gets painful, is that somehow this country has to wrestle norms and enough shared experience and identity to be able to co-create a thriving society while seeing and loving and living our differences and keeping those differences. And that's, I think, one of the most beautiful and terrible, frustrating, animating tensions of our country. Um, Love that. And, but again, it is, it is beautiful exactly for what you say. I think that so much of the wisdom and richness that comes from our mixed culture is because we, we have not just eliminated that tension. 
we have wrestled with it. And a mm-hmm. lot of that tension exists between the, the sort of political ideological left and right, you know, where conservatives think about when they think about change, they think about what ought to be preserved, which is a beautiful question, one of the most important. And when the more liberal minded folks think about change, they're they're going quickly. They're like, let's go. Let's try this and this and that. But but it's sort of a yin and yang. There's a there's a balance even there, too. Uh, but it's so true about cultures because we come from different places. We come from different norms. We come from different rituals and traditions. And to make them all work together can be so exhausting, right? That it's easier to just, sometimes it's easier to fold into your own group and stay there. Mm-hmm, that's right. And that's where the capacity piece comes in for me. When I, Again, when I see it through the somatic lens, like someone's physical ability to be with the sensations that arise from discomfort. Mm, yes. and. I think we, we are so intellectual with our ideas of um, tolerance or diversity and inclusion. It's like an intellectual concept. Uh, for me, it has to be, a, uh, the body has to be included. Like I have to feel a safety inside of myself to engage with someone that I might fear their values yes. or I have no resource. I'm going to go into my trauma response and shut them down or run away. It's, so I'm curious, even in your own body, how how do you experience that or, or witness that with the work you do when people start feeling safe with the quote other like what what is that like a process yeah so i think a lot about conversations as a uniquely powerful context that we all have them every day we never think about the sophisticated micro decisions that we make within the course of a conversation just to keep it going the ways we read each other's body language gestures tone there's so much we communicate and when people come in and they don't feel safe, you can you can see it in the body 100%, whether it's a crossed arm or it's sort of a, a certain look uh, mm-hmm. in the eyes. And it can, it can lead people, it does lead people more quickly toward judgment. And I've, I've found there to be this polarity between judgment and curiosity. When you are judgmental, you cannot be curious. When you are curious, you cannot be judgmental. And the good news is you can switch between the two. And sometimes you can, I feel like you can do it even in your posture. If you have the intention and you're sitting there going, man, I don't, I can tell I'm suspicious. I can tell I'm distrustful, but I'm not sure that I have good reason to be. I want to be more curious. I don't want to be so certain about this judgment that I have. I'm going to turn that judgment into a question. And we can do that it's sometimes it begins with language. It begins with thought. And I think it spreads to the body. So for example, Mm. the thought, how could you believe that? How could you believe that you put the stress on the how, right? And there's a sense of threat and anger. You turn it to how could you believe that? Mm. And just the difference, your, your body, even as you say it, right? I, I don't know if this makes any sense and I'm not at all a somatic therapist. So you'll have to tell me, but the title of the book, I never thought of it that way. I describe it very much as a physical sensation, even though we know we know thoughts as mental, right? So to me, when I have what I consider the reward of a curious conversation across disagreement, I think of that, I, I give it the name and I never thought of it that way moment. It's when you think or say, huh, I never thought of it that way. And how that feels to me, and I've reflected on this a lot, is like you're sitting in a room and set and like some it's it was a stuffy room and someone opened a door and you can feel mm-hmm. a kind of draft and air and so you're maybe you were sitting down and suddenly you want to get up and explore these hallways of your mind that were always there now you want to revisit them because you're going to see them in a new light because of this new insight that just crossed that chasm between someone else's perspective and your own. So there is a sensation of discovery, of exploration, of adventure. That's the promise of curiosity. It can take a lot of time to get there. The beautiful thing about a conversation is it's so powerful. It can be such an all-consuming context that everything that exists outside the conversation can fall away. Kind of like that moment at the end of a chick flick, you know, when like the camera spins around the couple and they're just kissing and everything. And gone. <laughs> like I see a parallel there. Like there's a moment where you're just so connected and you're discovering things about each other and whatever you might've been afraid of just doesn't seem to matter so much in the moment. You've, you've let go of some of those projections and assumptions and you're there with each other. 
I mean, you just so beautifully described the somatic experience, you know, of judgment and curiosity. I love when you said it starts as a thought, it spreads to the body. That's great for us to really feel into here because the somatic experience of judgment is one of constriction. It's exactly yes. what you were talking about. Yeah, the eye is getting tense. The my Mikato eyes getting tense, the your shoulders, the arms crossing, the legs crossing. There's a, a physical protection, a bracing that happens when we judge because there's fear. Curiosity literally starts expanding those muscles and creates an openness. And when you said it feels like air comes in, like there's space, that's so gorgeous because we we often will talk about capacity feels like there's more space or more room. And that space and room literally gives you the actual physical, biological capacity to handle the charge that comes up when someone says something controversial or taboo or shocking, or even like innocently ignorant. You know, there's mm -hmm. the innocent ignorance and there's like mm -hmm. malice and, and you're able to handle that. And so I love that you, you speak to that. I love that you notice that in yourself and in the people you work with. I, what excited me that your parents voted for Trump, what excited me about that was the media's portrayal. Again, the media doesn't invite nuance. It's mm -hmm. um, it's just a bunch of different people's perceptions and they're usually in a trauma response. Mm -hmm. So they're talking about things from a really stressed, scared, judgmental place, not a curiosity. Mm -hmm. No one says, you know, Trump voters think this. I wonder why. Let's spend an hour looking. It's they think this and dot. And then everyone who voted for Trump is under this blanket of being like mm. a racist or um, you know, you know, against abortion or against women. And so I this summer I go to my parents' house. My dad's floating around on his Trump float. <laughs> Oh my gosh, he has a Trump float. Oh, that's amazing. He's floating around on his Trump float. And while he's floating on his Trump Trump float, he's simultaneously saying, I don't know why the Republicans are arguing about abortion. Just let the woman decide. So right there is this like wow. one moment of nuance that no one captures. So yeah. I wanted to drop that here and just see where you yeah. go with that. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. And I mean, see that moment, the fact that you witnessed that moment, the fact that you have a relationship close enough to someone who is that different, that you could witness that moment. I think of it as a kind of immunity, um, mm. like a built up immunity to the, the loose and lazy judgments that do tend to surround us, that consolidate into narratives, that spread all over the place. And those places that we go to stay safe and secure, our own, I think of them as silos, right? Media silos, information silos, thought silos, where we don't think we're going to get truly challenged, where we are exposed to other perspectives, but after many layers of judgments that we ourselves might apply, <laughs> we don't get to witness those moments. So that's that's one of the things I'm most concerned of concerned about right now. It's um, as I've been a journalist my whole career and I love it. And journalism is concerned with many things, uh, maybe above all truth. Right. Journalism tries, wants to be the truth building institution. But <laughs> I don't believe that there's a way that we can have a collective search for truth. When there is so little trust. When, when at the foundation of our storytelling and our ability to communicate, there's this massive suspicion. And so I've asked myself, what then is the trust building institution? And I think it's us. I don't think there is one that's sort of built up somewhere with, you know, an industry or anything. It's us. So it's it's you and your dad having a relationship. It's it's you know what whether it's Thanksgiving dinner or everyday life. It's us witnessing people who would be monsters not mm. be monsters mm. and clearly refute that. And I'm really concerned that for a lot of people, those refutations are just not something they can witness. Mm. It's it's nuance, it's challenges, it's invitations to curiosity that they don't even get. Uh, and that's, ah! <laughs> and it's not only that they don't, that we don't get them, it's also that we are, again, because of a sense of threat, mm -hmm. putting further and more and more distance between us and those moments of witnessing actual humanity and goodness. Um Love that you bring up that distance piece because I just think that's such an important 
aspect of the formula we're in right now is especially if we think of um, social media, we think of algorithms. If I'm not even inviting the other side's stories into my feeds, I'm literally just being reflected what I already believe in. And I'm so distanced from what someone else believes in that I'm I'm not even realizing that I'm othering them just by that like homogenized viewpoint that I get fed every day. And the word that keeps coming up to me, which I think is actually a practice, is humility. There is so much humility, which is super vulnerable. And in psych terms, is like an ego death there, right? To actually allow what you believe to be true about someone to let that die inside of you, that takes serious practice. Like, what, what, what do you say about humility here? How much does that play into this piece? So much. Uh, you, were, you were talking about curiosity within being able to look within yourself Mm -hmm. and see the judgments you yourself carry. Mm -hmm. We also have very few invitations to do that because what we seek is affirmation. We get Mm. it, you know, validation, the, the vanity metrics on social media. This is what we crave. We, We want that. We want approval. People talk a lot about belonging and the importance of that to the psyche Uh, This is a time when you do not want to be cut off. That's Mm. the last thing you want. And so you will, whatever it takes, man, like rationalize, but, you know, find your way to believing whatever, just as long as somebody hears you and sees you and you feel heard and seen because we're not, we're not doing that for each other across certain lines of difference. Uh, So humility is absolutely key. And, and I've been looking more into some research about it. And there's one study that just my jaw dropped to the floor um, (laughs) where it showed that. So being an intellectually humble has a couple of pieces to it. One is the ability to, uh, you know, consider alternatives to one's own beliefs. And the other is the, the ability to even um, kind of engage, you know, other people who may, may believe something different. So it's sort of how you, how you hold your own stuff and how you look at other stuff. Mm -hmm. And in this one study, if, when they had the subjects just call to mind someone in their life who hears and receives them well, doesn't matter who they weren't even in the room, just think about them. They became more intellectually humble. Mm. What is that? That's amazing. So, so the principle to me there is people can only hear when they're heard and it's humility that creates within us and between us that flexibility to not just come in going, I'm here to insist on myself, Mm. but you're not because you're, you're not even exploring yourself, that flexibility. You think it's rigid confidence and strength being presented to the other person, but we don't, what we don't often realize is that rigidity conceals our own nuance from us. So is it strength? I don't think so. I think what's, I think what's strong is, is, you know, and, and, and like you've said, it takes some practice to build that resilience, but it's possible and it does take humility. And, and I think it's one of the first steps is to, is to disentangle that idea that strength equals certainty mm. strength equals curiosity mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. uncertainty is not wishy-washiness it's not being nice it's not fawning it's it's not it's you you are able to say what you believe and you are able to be open to what others believe mm. so that you can continue to add friction to your own beliefs because that keeps you wise and healthy i mean as so much you're saying there is coming up for me especially that piece there I'm feeling and hearing, you know, real confidence comes from, I don't get shaken when you disagree with me. You know, there's this idea that like you're saying, like strength is certainty. Certainty is just really a, a, a drug that soothes us from getting dysregulated from someone disagreeing with us at the, at the end of the day. It's like a border we put up. So we don't have to question our beliefs. So we don't have to be wrong. And so we don't have to feel that vulnerability that comes with releasing something I thought was true. And I think that 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 uh, nuance around the biology of going through things like humility, experiencing curiosity, letting a belief die about somebody, even your own beliefs about yourself, it, it takes such a connection. A big part of my work is finding safety in yourself. Mm-hmm. And I find that it takes that connecting to the safety in me. Mm-hmm. So I'm not depending on you to validate my belief. So if I'm with someone who disagrees with me, 
it's a completely okay thing that you a hundred percent I'll even go as far to say you won't acknowledge me like you'll mm-hmm. say like whatever I say I am or think I am is wrong to you that won't shake me if I'm connected to my own secure validation of myself so right so a lot of these desires to oppress people with debates on any side really comes from there's something in me that's actually not sturdy with my own self-connection where how do you work absolutely with that? absolutely i i think a lot of it a lot of it comes from people's sense of of moral goodness and of standing up for what's right and that's where you know i i have a lot of sympathy and empathy you know for for the rigidity we build you know around ourselves it, it is a, it is a protective measure mostly though because because of that fear of not being seen as being on the right side of things, not being, you know, my peers will see what I post on social media here. If I ask a question, they'll wonder if I'm one of the, one of the team. Mm. And so that in and of, mm. in and of itself. So we, we justify that to ourselves by, by saying, well, that's just me, you know, marching in the army of goodness. Is it though? Because mm-hmm. think of all the judgments that are there and how how often do you go to talk to real people to check those judgments? Because if you don't, then, <laughs> you know, that that rigidity is a protective measure that actually hurts. It might hurt you because you aren't building the security, I think, in that in that way. I think about um, one of the things that the places that I went to is people ask me, I've been traveling around the country and, and lots of interviews and you know, one of the questions people ask me is, well, what is, what is that red line? There has to be a social red line. Can you give us the script? Can you give us the rules Mm. for everybody? Like if I am black, I don't need to worry about this. If I am gay, I don't need to worry about this. So people are looking for that. They're looking for, give me the identity and the hard and fast social rule that we can all lean on. And I won't do it. Good for you. I won't because, because, and, and what's funny is for me, I just tell people, look, this is individual. Every relationship is unique, right? Um, every conversation is unique. Every situation is unique. You, you decide for yourself what divides you want to cross and when. Nobody should make you feel like you should do something you're not ready to do. So, so I'm with that. Like, no one should expect you know X to speak with Y. Mm-hmm. But I also think no one should expect X not to speak with Y. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. That's the key difference. So all I can really say in answer to that question is this: that heat in a conversation can be good the distinction is whether that heat is cooking something or burning something Mm. so if you're in a conversation and you're feeling that burn my trust is burning my sense of self-worth or dignity is burning a relationship i care about i can tell is burning that's your red line you'll know when you hit it right so i've i've been very curious about why that is not enough in the society, why, why there's lots of people who are still like, no, give me that guardrail, that protective guardrail, please make it based on identity or belief or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. So that, so why, right? What is it? So that I don't have to be open every yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, this and is like, so. Pa- I'm like, yeah. we need more than 45 minutes. We need, <laughs> we need 45 days, um, because this is so good. I just, I'm, I'm loving this. You know, every cohort of the course that I teach throughout the year, we always get questions like, tell me what Mm -hmm. to say to my mother or tell me how to handle this to my husband. It's exactly what you just said. That's why I said I reflexively was like, good for you. Because it lights me up to not give them a script as if I know them, Mm -hmm. but to actually invite them to get to know themselves a little better. And I think why we're grasping for the script, and even when I say the script, I hear the words performative allyship as well. It's part of the script. The reason we're grasping for that thing that I do to be on the right side or to have boundaries or to even even justify prejudice, right? The script is really because I'm disembodied. Like, I, I I don't know how it feels in my body when a line's crossed. I'm not in there. Right. I'm up, I'm up here. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. fascinating. And right? so there's a kind of numbness to the yes. the, the the radar, the thing I that will give you exactly. that authenticity. Oh my and gosh, I never thought of it that way. Thank you. That's so cool. There's, there's literally a term called neuroception that speaks to this. Oh. And neuroception speaks to that's adorable. It's my son, Neuro- yeah. He's, he may he may need to tell me something he in can a minute. Say whatever he wants. Is You're that okay? Free. Absolutely. Okay. He's writing a note, but I want you to continue. And I'll, okay. I'll 
<laughs> okay, yeah. he's, he's yeah. welcome too. Okay. Um, neuroception is when your nervous system is reading the room <laughs> and feeling the person or the body in front of you. And then sensationally, it's telling you your capacity, it's telling you if you should run, it's telling you if you wow. should engage. It's like everything we need is in that neuroception. But the way to access neuroception is via sensation. And when you were saying about threat, which is so important, when we have threat overcoupled with somebody, we can't even feel our neuroception. We're dissociated in trauma responses. And then we leave and then we leave saying the person's threatening or they caused harm when really actually we got triggered. And that's like a huge thing I've been discovering within my work. That is so fantastic. Yes, yes. And and I mean, gosh, it's it's when I think of social media and part of what's sort of gone wrong there, so much of it is opinion versus opinion. It's all heady. It's all That's up right. here. All, up, all here. up here. And we don't, you know, as I say, the internet is a non-place that makes us into non-people. Our bodies disappear, our stories mm. disappear, mm. our histories mm. disappear. None of that is it, no invitations to curiosity about any of those things. Okay, I'm going to read this note. Uh, hang on. Go ahead. Go ahead. Really? Okay. So one candy for breakfast and one candy for to bring to school. Really? Fine. This is a Halloween negotiation. Is <laughs> a Halloween negotiation. I told him he could bring a candy in his lunchbox, and he came all the way down here to ask if he every could also parent, have one for breakfast. Every parent oh across gosh. the country is empathizing with um, this know. moment. Oh my gosh! And you know what? I let him have. Yeah, I let him have as much candy as they wanted last night. And then today they're going to have to pick 25 pieces to save and the rest will donate. It's a whole thing. It's a whole oh, thing believe every me, year. We, got it. we have the switch, Witch, which what is, is like you bring all your g- corporate candy with corn syrup and you put it on the ancestor altar and then you wake up the next morning and the switch Witch has replaced it with things that are actually good for your body. So oh, then <laughs> so, so, so then it's like, I don't, we don't have to worry so much about all the corn syrup and stuff. Um, wonderful idea. And it's, it's really fun. But anyway, you said something powerful and then you didn't pause because you went to reading the thing and I wanted to pause if people really heard it. Yes, yes. You said the internet is a non-place. So our bodies, our stories, our sensations, our experiences don't show up there. And I really wanted everyone to feel that. That is so powerful to me. I just want us to like really feel that. It's so gorgeous. And it, yeah, it's everything is just words and words and language mm-hmm. and meanings that are all in our brain and mind. And that's it. And it really kills me. Right. Because in order to protect ourselves, a lot of people go on social media and they don't post their real picture. They don't have their real name. It's a form of protection, but yep. that protection also obscures us. And part of the requirement to understanding is being able to see each other. It's also the only thing we really want. It's the only mm. thing we crave is to be understood. So we go into these spaces protecting ourselves by obscuring ourselves. And then the space, you know, on its own just doesn't have room, literally does not have room for you, you know, just your ideas, sort of a flat doppelganger, you know, that you have to constantly mm-hmm. update in hopes that you're up to date. You know, Mm -hmm. and that no one will judge you Mm. based on what you haven't said or how you said what you did say. Did you use the right word or not? I mean, there are chilling, terrifying fears out there along these lines that we're not even able to talk about um, in these spaces. I just have to keep riffing on this piece of not having the body, you know, on the space because two things. The first thing is this really strange somatic thing occurs when we're watching a, watching a screen. Our social engagement area, so our face is like highly activated because our eyes are looking, If we're especially if we're scrolling. But what that activation is, is dopamine and adrenaline. So there's actually this chemistry of activation, which can become a biology similar to threat or trauma response or stress response if we get too much adrenaline. But what's interesting about the screen is we're not moving when we're looking at it. We're sitting. So all that charge is building with nowhere to go. And so it goes more into the screen. And so a a lot of people get actually dysregulated so much quicker when they're trying to have a debate or, you know, even express views online because because it's exactly there's no there's no body there's nowhere for it to go there's no nuance no one's pausing you and an example of this that i noticed of the disembodiment of it was in 2020 when george floyd was murdered and there was this huge outpouring on social media about do this say this don't do this don't say this right right and i remember especially because i have white skin 
everyone was like, you know, writing, like, you shouldn't be posting right now. You should only be amplifying black voices. Right. And, right. And what was interesting was my part of my clientele, people of color, part of my family's people of color, and a lot of people following me are people of color. And they needed the trauma work I was giving on Instagram during that yeah. time more yeah. than ever. Oh, of course. So yeah. I thought, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to listen to my own, like you said, the red line. I'm going to listen to my red yeah. line. It feels yeah. good just to keep posting. So I just kept posting. And this one person commented on my, on one of the posts saying, you know, that I essentially saying I was causing harm. Mm. And someone responded to her saying, um, no, no, he's not. And she I don't I don't even remember, but essentially told this person off. No, it was so <sighs> interesting was yeah. the person telling the other person off was a white woman and the person that was saying it's good was a black man. Yeah, and, oh my and, gosh. She, yeah. and she yeah. wasn't even in the room. So if, if, <sighs> if we would have been if our bodies were there, if we would even be able to identify like in that moment what we yeah. were doing, she wouldn't have even done that. She was so dysregulated and dissociated. Wow. So, you know, so like Oh. One example of many, right? But I find exactly. it fascinating. Oh, it is. And and it's it's I, I'm also um thinking back to that idea of people wanting to be given rigid red lines that are identity or belief based, right? And and how silly that can be when when we discover that there is nuance even there, right? That there's principles that look, if we if we if we build up guardrails so rigid. Think of everything we're missing. Think of mm. all the dimensions that we're not thinking about. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's fascinating. It reminds me of um, a story I heard not too long ago from someone who just was pretty transformed by this moment, but a white man who had heard something, and I don't know what it was, but something he saw, thought was just insanely racist from uh, another white man that he knows, a, a sort of friend, and had decided in that moment, like walked out and said, I'm not, that's it. Like, I'm not going to hang out with this person anymore. It's over. And then the next day, talked to a friend of his who happens to be black. And the, the the black friend like interrupted him and said, you go right back to that guy. You're the hope. Like, do not break that. You you have trust there already. Mm. Like, okay, you you might not be able to like bring this up, you know, every day until he changes something about how he thinks, but you cannot, you cannot just, just breaking that will, will almost assure that that person mm-hmm. spends more time with people who wouldn't challenge some of oh, those beliefs. That's and, so important to me. Yeah. And, and, uh, so yeah, there's, this, there's yeah. this other quote I heard uh, from an interview you were on and I wrote it down because I want you to just share with us. Mm-hmm. It's not just the diversity you like that we're learning how to include and nurture. Yes. Tell us about that. Like, what, how does that show up? What does that mean? Yeah, that's from a man named Ibu, who is the CEO of the Interfaith. I want to say it's the Interfaith Alliance or the Interfaith Council. Um, but I saw I saw him give a talk about that very idea. It's not just the diversity you like. Meaning, uh, if if diversity is strength, that comes across many spectra. Mm. It's a strength mm. on a lot of levels. And and the diversity you like, he was speaking in particular to, um, you know, it, it's it's race, it's gender, and we're putting a lot of attention on that. And there's a lot of protection needed there. There's a lot of awareness and curiosity needed across divides on that. And man, oh man, have we been focused on it? I remember he brought up, you know, really delicately and beautifully, and through storytelling, he travels to a lot of colleges, and sometimes he travels to to colleges where you know they're they're expensive and they're liberal arts, but you have to drive through from the airport. You've got to drive through rural areas, right? And he he talked about sort of the interesting thing going on when he's in a, he's sitting there with a group of students, students of color, you know, all kinds of students. And those students are talking about oppression and everything. And then he sees someone who's maybe like the janitor, you know, and that janitor is white. And that janitor is not making a lot of money. And, and Ibu like learned about, you know, the community, the surrounding community, the college and how little connection there is. Mm. And, and so thinking about that, it's like, what, a, you know, diversity of class, diversity mm. of viewpoint and ideology, diversity of background. There's all this different kinds Religion, of diversity. Education, Religion, so which is something that's so hard for progressives <laughs> to talk about. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like, what are we missing when 
we put up these walls and we think only on this side is the good over there. It's just, it's just going to be harmful. It's going to be harmful to me. It's going to be harmful to others to engage. But, but I think you can do, you know, to quote Byron Katie, you can do the turnaround on a lot of those things. You can say, actually, let me look for evidence of exactly the opposite. And you'll find it. If you, if you embrace some intellectual humility, you'll find it. Mm. It's amazing. I, I just had the honor of interviewing her. Uh, last week. So you're the next one after her. So it's funny you just quoted uh, her. Yeah, <laughs> she's, like she's incredible. She's incredible. incredible. She, doing her practices actually brought me to what you were saying earlier about the question mark. Because whenever I notice my mind is making a statement about anyone, including myself, including a tree, like anything, I immediately find myself just a question mark comes instead. Good. And it just creates this constant curiosity. Like I'll say, I'll, I'll say to myself, I'm queer. I'm queer. And it's like, it's just, I'm constantly trying to expand uh, the box that even I put myself in. Yeah. And without wow. words, you know, we would connect in this more vibratory way and it would change all the time. It wouldn't be this yeah. one frozen identity. Yes. So I just love, I just love your work so much. I love how you present it. And I just love, I love to meet other people who are young, who are doing the bridge work because the bridge work is the work that fascinates me. Mm. I get so physically tired when something's really homogenized. So mm -hmm. if I walk into a room and there's like liberals, conservatives, black, white, Spanish, queer, straight, you know, priests, I feel most settled in those kind of rooms. Like I love wow. diversity so much. Yes, if yes. it's just one or the other, I'm like, oh, I need, I need some like mixing here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, my yeah. Family. But I just love it. So I, I guess uh, so much more I want to ask you. I only have a couple minutes. Um, tell us about braver angels more specifically for people interested in i don't know if people can join donate like tell us about mm, it right so braver angels is nationwide there's something like 85 local alliances all across the country cities and towns each has half red half blue leadership it was actually co-founded by a renowned marriage therapist family therapist named bill doherty out of minnesota and the the analogy is to couples on the brink of divorce that the same a lot of the same methods and tactics to get couples who are about to just give in and throw in the towel to see each other again applies to Democrats and Republicans in America. The mm. difference being that in America, we can't, divorce is not an option. We don't want to make that an option. So it's, it's, it's incredible. I, I found myself drawn in. I, I discovered them at a conference and I was like, wait, this is the thing that I thought was impossible. Someone's already doing it. What? There's about 50 workshops. And so it's all experiential. There's the depolarizing within workshop. There's the skills to cross the divide. There's skills for social media. There's families divided by politics, which is a fascinating workshop that gives you a framework for the roles that people will play in a political disagreement in a family. Oh my goodness. So yeah, I've just been, <laughs> I got very lit when wow. I discovered all this and talking to Bill and talking to David Blankenhorn, the president. And, and now I'm in that room all the time. Thanks to Braver Angels, that room that's so mixed. Um, and we've mm. got rural folks and we've got urban folks and we've got all kinds of people. Um, and the, the goal is to, you know, strengthen our democratic Republic, bring red and blue together. You can, um, you can go to braverangels.org look it up. If these are issues that you're dealing with in your family, I'm telling you, there's no better place to start. You'll find trusting relationships. You'll join a workshop of just, you know, a handful of people. Um, and, and yeah, people have, people have made extraordinary connections. They've repaired, uh, bridges they've burned. Mm. And, and I, yeah, this is where I'm planting my feet because this community gives me a lot of hope and is actually making a difference. Mm. I love that it was founded by a marriage therapist because this whole conversation in my mind, I've been thinking of all the years that it couples therapy and I was noticing this similar, it's exactly the same thing. And the curiosity, when I see couples bring curiosity into their sessions, instead of coming in, like it's a court case and they're like ready to tell me what the other one did, everything starts opening and shifting. All this love swells in and it's incredible yeah. what happens then. Um, final thought or final offering. I would love for you to give us something about your family who voted for Trump that no mm -hmm. one would ever think of. Like the way I said, my father was talking about, you know, like a pro-choice mm -hmm. uh, on, on his Trump float. Like what, what's something mm -hmm. about your family 
that no one would associate with a Trump supporter. Oh yeah. Uh, one moment that immediately comes to mind is from when I was a, you know, preteen, probably we used to go to the movies all the time as a family and we went to see Rugrats, the movie. I don't know if you know the Nicktoons. Oh, I yeah. grew up. I was a Rugrats, Rugrats fan. Are you kidding awesome. me? So you remember Tommy Pickles? Oh, I in, do. In the movie, he had a little baby brother, Dill Pickles. Tommy's already a baby in diapers and he has a baby. It's really weird. Anyway. Um, so my dad, and I have sometimes collided in a sense of where we put our love and our compassion. Um, mm. You know, I tend to look really far afield, right? Like I, I care a lot for people far away and I want the world to be a better place. And, and it's not like he doesn't want those things, but there's that, there's that tension. And there, there's a moment at that movie that really brought it home for me, what the difference is. So there's a moment where little Tommy Pickles and his little baby brother that he's very resentful of dill pickles are lost and they end up in a cave at night and it's cold you know and it's stormy outside and they have one blanket between them and they wake up tommy wakes up in the middle of the night because dill has pulled the blanket to cover him you know he's asleep he didn't mean to pulled it just to cover him and so it's a very tiny blanket it didn't really cover both of them very well and tommy looks at his little brother wants to bring the blanket back to him but then decides no I'm going to let my little brother have the blanket and I'm going to shiver the rest of the night. And I hear my dad next to me sobbing. So um, my, to my dad, the people close to him, he will do anything, you know, like family love, that kind of thing. It's, it's everything. Like he doesn't get that distracted by, you know, attachments all over the place. Like, yeah, it's it's those people. Um, it's the value of benevolence that he has mm. so much of. And um, and yeah, that was a moment that really showed me like never think that other people don't have love because they don't apply it the mm. same way you do, right? That's it right there. He yeah. has love, he has love for days, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was that was quite I a moment. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. I just loved this conversation. I I, I feel like we're going to have more conversations. You know, I, I want hope so. To. Mm-hmm. And so, um, especially those of you listening, our dear Marika they brought Monica my way. Oh, so I they're love friends. Marika. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> we're all she's my favorite. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for being a good friend to her and a good friend to all of us and doing this work. Thank you so much. This was, I cannot tell you, there's at least 10, I never thought of it that way moments and I'm going to write them all down as soon as I can. And when we, when we, okay, my so, friend, I'll talk to you, you soon. Take good care. Right. Thanks, Lise. Bye. Bye. So that's the end of today's episode. Notice where you feel the episode inside of your body. Those sensations, those expressions, that's how your body speaks to you. Sit with it. Be with it, and let whatever wants to come up, come up. Because all the wisdom you're looking for is right there in those sensations. If you want to go deeper into these practices or find more information about my work, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.